Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 31, the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14. At Pisidian Antioch, there were many Antiochs, Paul said this, to the synagogue congregation that he was addressing as recorded in Acts chapter 13 verses 38 and 39. Therefore, brothers, let it be known to you that through this man is proclaimed forgiveness of sins. That is, God clears everyone who puts his trust in this man. Even in regard to all the things concerning which you could not be cleared, by the Torah of Moses. Now we discussed this statement at length last time because really it's the molten core of our faith. But it is also crucial to help us understand the historical Paul. What he means when he speaks about how he views the law and some of his several letters that form the New Testament biblical books that we call the epistles. Now, I'll do little more than summarize as to the plain meaning of verses 38 and 39. Clearly, no matter which English translation you might choose to read, the crux is that Paul is saying there are things in the Torah of Moses for which forgiveness was not possible using the Torah system of atonement. However, trust in this man, meaning Yeshua, can clear you of those formerly unforgivable sins. The mainstream Christian thought on this verse is that the Torah didn't forgive any sins at all, ever. Only Yeshua can do that. Now that head-scratching conclusion is a good example of a man-made doctrine that has been formed to satisfy a certain agenda. And then regardless of what the Bible might say, the scripture is contorted or allegorized to uphold that doctrine. Now we looked last week at Leviticus 4, verses 32 through 35, just as an example of the Torah claiming that if the sinner has a contrite heart, and if he follows the ritual procedures, meaning a a sacrifice, then that sinner would be forgiven of that sin. Leviticus 4.35 states, Thus the Kohen, the priest, will make atonement for him in regard to the sin he committed, and he will be forgiven. That same statement is made numerous times in the Law of Moses, so it cannot have been a translation error, nor can it be anything but an established God pattern. Obviously, the Bible tells us that the sacrificial system offered actual forgiveness for sins. So logically, it cannot be that Yeshua represents the first time in history that men could achieve forgiveness of sins. Rather, As the self-evident reading of Acts 13.39 states, there were certain sins in the Torah of Moses that could not be forgiven. But Messiah Yeshua can forgive them. 
And although I've said it before in our earlier studies of the Old Testament books, it warrants repeating. Look, either forgiveness of sins occurred as a result of an animal sacrifice properly administered through the Levitical priesthood, or it didn't. If an animal sacrifice did not provide forgiveness as promised, then the Torah is simply wrong. So if the sacrificial system failed to atone for sins, as the Torah claims, then God created and gave to the Israelites a broken system. Or He deceived Israel into believing that the animal sacrifices forgave sin, but they didn't. And since God Himself gave Moses the Torah, then the bottom line is that God must either have made a mistake or He changed His mind. And both of these possibilities are as unthinkable to Christianity as they are to Judaism. Once again, Paul is pointing out that it is only that Yeshua could forgive sins that the Torah sacrificial system was not designed to forgive. Sins such as idolatry, adultery, murder. In fact, the Mishnah says there are 36 sins for which no animal sacrifice can provide forgiveness. But what we also see in verses 38 and 39 is a fundamental understanding of Paul's theology. It is that Yeshua's kind of forgiveness is better. And it's more all-encompassing than the kind of forgiveness that's available in the Torah of Moses. Let's look at it this way. Maybe this will help. See, there's two sides of the divine ledger of justice that the Torah deals with. On the one side is a series of written laws that are to be obeyed. On the other side of the ledger is what to do when one of these laws is disobeyed. The sacrificial system of atonement only dealt with the side of the ledger of what to do when the law is disobeyed. The side of the ledger is also called the curse of the law because it deals with negative consequences for breaking the law. Thus, it is the same with Yeshua, you see. See, He only came to deal with the side of the justice ledger that had to do with what happened when a law was disobeyed. He came to deal with the side that deals with the curse of the law. This is why, during his Sermon on the Mount, after addressing a a few Torah laws and explaining their deepest meaning and intent, that he paused in Matthew 5, 17 through 19 to declare that the side of the justice ledger that established the many laws and all the commandments that forms the law of Moses is not what he came to deal with. Or as the passage says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Paul speaks of the law and of the forgiveness of Messiah in this context. This is what he means by it. 
It is on the side of the ledger that deals with the consequences of our sins. The consequences of breaking the law. It is this whereby Paul establishes that Yeshua is better than the remedies of the law when it, especially when it comes to providing forgiveness. Therefore, Yeshua is the answer to the curse of the law. He says He was nailed to that tree to be a curse for us. That's what it means. But this was not about abrogating the law itself. Let's reread the final few verses of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to go to page 1378. 1378. We're going to begin at verse 30. Acts 13, starting at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared for many days to those who would come up with him from the Galil, that is the Galilee to Yerushalayim, and they are now his witnesses to the people. Now as for us, we are bringing you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled for us the children in raising up Yeshua, as indeed it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And as for raising him up from the dead to return, uh, to return to decay no more, he said, I will give the holy and trustworthy things of David to you. This is explained elsewhere. We, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David did indeed serve God's purposes in his own generation. But after that, he died. He was buried with his fathers. He did see decay. However, the one God raised up did not see decay. Therefore, brothers, let it be known to you that through this man is proclaimed forgiveness of sins. That is, God clears everyone who puts his trust in this man even in regard to all the things concerning which you could not be cleared by the Torah of Moses. Now watch out then, so that this word found in the prophets may not happen to you. You mockers, look and marvel and die. For in your own time I am doing a work that you simply will not believe, even if someone explains it to you. And as they left, the people invited Shaul and Barnabas, the, Paul and Barnabas, to tell them more about these matters on the following Shabbat. And when the synagogue meeting broke up, many of the born Jews and devout proselytes followed Shaul and Barnabas and spoke with them and urged them to keep holding fast to the love and kindness of God. And the next Shabbat, nearly the whole city gathered together to hear the, the messages about the Lord. But when the Jews had not believed, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They spoke up against what Paul was saying and they insulted him. However, Paul and Barnabas answered boldly, It was necessary that God's word be spoken first to you. But since you're rejecting it and you're judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life, why, we're turning to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. For that is what Adonai has ordered us to do. I have set you as a light for the Gentiles to be a for deliverance to the ends of the earth. 
The Gentiles were very happy to hear this. They honored the message about the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life came to trust, and the message about the Lord was carried throughout the whole region. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the women God-fearers of high social standing and the leading men of the city, and they organized persecution against Shaul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from the district. However, Shaul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the Talmudim, the disciples, were filled with joy and with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. After explaining to his mixed audience of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles about Yeshua being the one that the Abrahamic covenant promised and that he forgives sins, Paul issues a stern warning. And he does it by borrowing a passage from Habakkuk chapter 1. The warning is that in Yeshua, God is doing an astounding work that is hard to believe. Even when someone thoroughly explains it. But for those who mock what God has done, the eternal death penalty awaits them. And by the way, the wording of this passage is quoted is excellent evidence that Paul was teaching from the Greek Septuagint because this is the precise form as we read it um, in our complete Jewish Bibles that, that's used there. See, the Hebrew Bible form of this passage is slightly different. Uh, the, the biggest difference is that it doesn't add in the words you mockers. And it is to be expected that Paul would be teaching from the Greek Septuagint since he is, after all, dealing with Greek speakers in foreign lands. Now here's the thing. Paul is essentially declaring Yeshua to be God even though he doesn't explicitly say so. Every Jewish child knew that it was only God who could forgive sins. So when Paul says that Yeshua could forgive sins, they instantly understood the implication. See, Messiah Yeshua himself was questioned because he said he could forgive sins. We read in Mark 2, verses 5 through 7. Seeing their trust, Yeshua said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Some Torah teachers sitting there thought to themselves, Well, how can this fellow say such a thing? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God? No doubt, Paul's teaching about forgiveness of sins in Yeshua was primarily responsible for Paul being beaten and ran out of more than just a few synagogues and towns. For the Jews who just couldn't accept the great work that God has done, this statement seemed like blasphemy and idolatry. Now, Shulam and Lake Horneau have done a, a, a wonderful job of digging through the, the Dead Sea Scrolls documents. And by doing so, I've found many writings that sound exactly like the Gospel message. This makes sense. The essence separated themselves from the, from the temple and the synagogue, and they studied the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, diligently. 
It is therefore not surprising that they would find Messiah or someone like Him in the passages of the prophets. Listen to this passage taken from the Dead Sea Scrolls document that is essentially a midrash, a commentary on the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.5, and they first quote it, Look, traitors, and behold, uh, be astonished, shocked, for in your time a work is done which you would not believe if it was reported. The interpretation of this word concerns the traitors with the man of the lie, since they do not believe the words of the teacher of righteousness from the mouth of God. And it concerns the traitors of the new covenant, since they did not believe in the covenant of God and they dishonored his holy name. They will not believe when they hear all this is going to happen to the final generation from the mouth of the priest whom God has placed within the community to foretell the fulfillment of all the words of his servants, the prophets, by means of whom God has declared all that is going to happen to his people, Israel. So the teacher of righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the community documents of the essence, the teacher of righteousness is a clear parallel concept to the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, even though there is no evidence that the essence thought that Yeshua of Nazareth was their expected teacher of righteousness. They thought this teacher would be one of their own, one of the essence. Now, Paul speaking so much struck the hearts of many in the congregation of Antioch that they pleaded with him to come back on the next Shabbat and teach again. Now remember, within Judaism, Shabbat had become a day when the most pious of the Jewish community would meet together at their synagogue for prayer, worship, and study. This was tradition. This was not the Torah law. You won't read about a communal worship meeting on the Sabbath in the Old Testament. That's because the tradition of doing so had not yet been established by the close of the Old Testament. So we should never take meeting on Shabbat as biblically directed. That said, there is certainly nothing wrong with it. And meeting on Saturday or Friday after sundown is a good and proper thing for any believer to do. It is clear that Yeshua went to the synagogue on Shabbat. And we find the disciples doing the same thing. Not because Yeshua did it, but because it was the cultural norm for that time. Just as Sunday service is a tradition for Christians for the whole Christian world and it has become the cultural norm now it's important to see that Paul's approach to telling these Jews and Gentile God-fearers of Antioch about Yeshua and about the gospel was to treat them with respect and to not accuse or to, to demean them or to incite them instead he taught them by beginning with Abraham and explaining the road to redemption through the patriarchs and then to David and then on down to Yeshua. And he did this in 
terms and in history that Jews and Gentiles who were educated in the Jewish religion, that they would understand. They'd find it familiar. Later on, when Paul is talking to other Gentiles who are not God-fearers, so they're pagans, so they don't know the slightest thing about the God of Israel, he takes a whole different approach. And he uses terms that he knows they'll understand. Paul would come back to Pisidian Antioch, and apparently his emphasis this next time was to encourage them to hold fast to what they had learned. Speaking to a congregation, making some believers, leaving, then coming back later to encourage them seems to be a pattern of Paul. Well, verse 45 speaks of many Jews who heard Paul but had not believed. They came against Paul. They tried to disrupt his mission. Now, the reason for their upset is that they felt Paul was blaspheming. Now, I mentioned earlier that no doubt the blasphemy began with the idea that Yeshua could forgive sins, meaning he was God. And that is really the crux of the matter for Jews to this day. However, the next verse lends credence to the thought that some of the Jews who came against Paul were upset because of the inclusion of Gentiles. Because in answer to the upset and the accusations of these non-believing Jews, Paul said this to them in verse 46. However, Shaul and Barnabas answered boldly, It was necessary that God's word be spoken first to you. But since you're rejecting it, you are judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Why? We're turning to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. See, this issue of Gentiles is admittedly a bit difficult to understand since God-fearing Gentiles were already a part of the synagogue congregation before Paul and Barnabas even arrived. So perhaps the upset was that, you know, it's one thing for Gentiles to come and worship the God of Israel's invited guests. It's quite another for them to become delivered and sanctified by the uniquely Jewish Messiah. In other words, it's one thing to allow a foreign immigrant into your country to work and pay taxes. It's quite another to offer them citizenship and all the rights that citizens have. Two different things. It's my opinion that all of these objections concerning Gentiles boils down to the issue of circumcision which is the mechanism by which a foreigner can convert to a Jew. And as we are seeing develop, Paul is especially outspoken against the need for a Gentile to become a Jew in order to be grafted into the Jewish covenants with God and therefore enjoy the benefits of salvation. There is no doubt in my mind that What we're going to study for a long time in Acts 15 is directly tied to this issue of the conversion of Gentiles, the ritual purity issues they cause, and their eligibility to be saved by a Jewish Messiah. As verse 48 says, the Gentiles were very happy 
to hear this message from Paul, and especially when he quoted Isaiah 49, which he applied to this direct situation whereby Paul and Barnabas would be the light for the Goyim, for the Gentiles. But then later on in verse 48 comes a few words that have been the spark behind, behind the creation of the church doctrine of predestination. The words are, and as many as have been appointed to eternal life came to trust. Now I've checked this in the Greek. I've checked it in a number of English translations and they all come out the same. The words seem to say that God appointed many to eternal life and it was they who came to trust. And by extension, those who got it in eternity past did not appoint to eternal life. They did not come to trust in Yeshua. The doctrine of predestination says that from eternity past, God determined by His own will who would be saved and brought into the kingdom of God and who wouldn't. This doctrine is a mainstay of Calvinism. The famous Westminster Confession defines this doctrine of predestination as meaning that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And then Ephesians 1.11 is usually quoted after, after that. And there it says, Also in union with him we were given an inheritance. We who were picked in advance according to the purpose of the one who affects everything in keeping with the decision of his will. In other words, the doctrine of predestination says that the course of human history is irrevocably set. Everything you or I will ever be or ever do was long ago decided. And whether we will be saved or not be saved was already predetermined. Therefore, the idea of choice is an illusion. God has supernaturally hardwired each of us to make all the choices He wants us to make. Now, it may seem like we're choosing by our own human free will, but in fact, we are like pre-programmed computers who only do what our programmer built us to do. Now, depending on which denomination you came from, their doctrine of predestination will take vastly different forms from other denominations. Some deny predestination altogether. Others, like Calvin, essentially make every detail of life and history written before our birth. A kind of middle ground approach is along the lines of God pre-knowing as opposed to predetermining what each person would do and then whether that person would decide, would choose to follow Yeshua or not. Now there's no doubt that these passages from Paul smack of the thought of predestination. Where might Paul get such an idea that everything has been predetermined by God the destiny of human history, the destiny of each and every human being, set in stone before Adam and Eve. 
Well, in Paul's day, there were three main streams of Jewish thought and religious philosophy. That of the Sadducees, that of the Pharisees, and that of the Essenes. The Sadducees denied any interference whatsoever by God into human affairs and choices. The Pharisees said that indeed some things are predetermined by the will of God, other things are determined by each man's will, and God foreknows what that will be. The Essens, well, they believed like Calvin. The Essens say everything was preordained by God, and it is only for each man to live out that predetermined destiny to find out what that destiny was, but only after the fact. So clearly Paul either believed, as the Pharisees did, after all he was a Pharisee, or he believed as the Essens did. Now I don't want to turn this lesson into a debate on predestination, but unfortunately the issue confronts us right here. Without going too deeply into the matter, here's what I think Paul believed and taught, and what I believe. The essence version, which is the same as Calvinism, essentially cancels human free will other than for the most trivial of choices. Chocolate ice cream over strawberry. Any day of the week. <clears throat> I don't see... I don't see that in Paul. I don't see it in his person. I don't see it in his writings. Rather, he's all about each individual making choices. Even in his statement in Acts 13.46 where he says, It was necessary that God's word be spoken to you first, but since you are rejecting it, you are judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Why then we're turning to the Gentiles? The idea is that the Jews he spoke to chose to reject the message, therefore choosing to forego eternal life, and therefore, as a result, he is choosing to take this message now to the Gentiles. There is a definite tone of choosing as individual choices of the free will. Choosing and turning in fact, are two of Paul's typical themes in all of his letters. He exhorts us over and over to choose to do God's will over our own. To choose and determine to turn from evil and turn towards good. If these are not acts of the human will, then I don't even know how to define what a human will does. Or why God even equipped us with one. It is indeed a frustrating pattern we find with Paul that he tends to make a strong statement that seems unequivocal only to turn around at another time and say something a bit different but just as strong about the same subject. If you search on the internet, you'll find many Christian websites that have entire sections devoted to where they see Paul in direct conflict with Yeshua on certain subjects. Or Paul conflicting with Paul. In other words, they see him contradicting himself. Now, I don't think either of these are the case. But it's easy to see 
why it seems that way. Now we've spent a great deal of time on Paul the person. And we find that the most influential thing in his life outside of his personal experience with Yeshua is the synagogue. And those who run the synagogue. The Pharisees. These influences didn't suddenly just depart from him. Even if some of his theology concerning the Messiah certainly changed. Simply because he learned and accepted that Yeshua is that Messiah. Paul thought as a Pharisee. Because he was a Pharisee. And salvation didn't change that. I see Paul as occupying the Pharisaical middle ground on predestination. That is, some things are indeed predetermined by God, other things are not. Exactly which is and which is not, it's not entirely clear. We have here a mystery that we can debate and debate and we will never really know for certain. But this much merely common sense can lead us to. Why would Christ say that the gospel must be taken to the ends of the earth if everyone is already predestined to choose the one of two options that we all have? Those who we tell and reject then were predestined to reject so they were born to go to hell. Those who we tell and accept were predestined to salvation so no matter what happens they're going to be saved before their death. If this is true then the evangelistic efforts of churches around the world and the suffering and discomforts that the apostles went through were a pointless exercise. And if this is the case then a cruel game is being played with us as little more than hapless marionettes being manipulated by a god of serendipity. And that is not the God that I know. And it's not the God that Paul describes. Well, in chapter 13, we learn that a group of the non-believing Jews went to some of the female God-fears and incited them to persecute Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's interesting that the women are characterized as having high social standing. See, well-to-do women in that era, especially the aristocrats, had lives of leisure and their husbands controlled every financial aspect of the marriage. However, one area outside of the family that women were often permitted to enter into was as benefactors to certain social and religious groups. So we'll find that not only in the history books, but in our Bibles, well-to-do women hosted meetings in their homes. Or they gave food and clothing to the poor. Or they supported some cause or another. Usually things that their husbands had little interest in, but it gave the woman a sense of, of value, of worth. We must also notice that since the term persecution is used quite often in the New Testament. It has a whole range of intensity from mere harassment up to violence and even murder. 
here it seems to mean, when it says they were being persecuted by these people, here it seems to mean mostly harassment that involved the emissaries being told to leave because they weren't welcome any longer. Paul and Barnabas chose to leave. And as we're going to see later, they often went back to the same places where they had been treated poorly. So they were anything but timid or fearful men. Apparently, in consultation with the Holy Spirit, they decided the best course of action for now was to go ahead and leave. They had, after all, established a core group of believers in Pisidian Antioch, and that was a very good start. So, they left for Iconium, in hopes of doing the same thing. Let's move on to chapter 14 in Acts. Acts chapter 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1380. Acts chapter 14. In Iconium, the same thing happened. They went into the synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a large number of both Jews and Greeks came to trust. But the Jews who would not be persuaded stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. Therefore, Shaul and Barnaba remained for a long time speaking boldly about the Lord who bore witness to the message about his love and kindness by enabling them to perform signs and miracles. However, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the unbelieving Jews, others with the emissaries. Now eventually the unbelievers, both Jews and Gentiles, together with their leaders, made a move to mistreat the emissaries, even to stone them. But they learned of it. They escaped to Lystra and Derbe, towns in Laconia and to the surrounding country where they proclaimed, continued proclaiming the good news. Now there was a man living in Lystra who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. And this man listened to Shaul speaking and Shaul looked at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, Stand up on your feet! Well, he jumped up and he began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they began to shout in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the form of men! They began calling Barnaba Zeus, Paul Hermes, since he did most of the talking. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, intending to offer, offer a sacrifice to them with the people. Well, when the emissaries, Barnaba and Shaul, heard of it, they tore their clothes, they ran into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We're just men, human, like you. We're announcing good news to you. Turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In times past, He allowed peoples to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without evidence of His nature because He does good things. Gives you rain from heaven, crops in their season, filling you with food and your hearts with happiness. Even saying this barely kept the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some unbelieving Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and they went over the crowds and they stoned Shaul. They dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. But as the disciples gathered around him, he got up, he went back into the town and the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. 
And after proclaiming the good news in that city and making many people into disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, reminding them that it is through many hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. And after appointing elders for them in every congregation, Shaul and Barnabas, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Passing through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And after speaking the message in Perga, they came down to Atalia. And from there, they sailed back to Antioch, the place where they had been handed over to the care of God for the work which they had now completed. And when they arrived, they gathered, the Messianic, they gathered the Messianic community together and reported what God had done through them, that he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed for some time there with the disciples. So as was their habit, Paul and Barnabas went to the local synagogue in Iconium and they were given a chance to speak. Well, many trusted as a result of this. Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, pagan Gentiles, of course, would not be attending synagogues. Now, Iconium was a major Roman city located about 95 miles east of Pisidian Antioch, situated at a crossroads of, of major trade routes. A sizable Jewish community lived there, no doubt due in part to the business opportunities. But as many has had come to believe, a sizable number of, of the Jews were also opposed. They were upset at the gospel message of the disciples, so they sought an alliance with the local Gentiles to stir up trouble against Paul and Barnabas. And as always, we have to wonder what this major upset was all about. What was it? Well, out in the diaspora, the issues of religion were less apparent than they were in the hypersensitive religious environment of Jerusalem. But religion... Religious issues remained, nonetheless. In Jerusalem, you see, the issues were mostly about internal, highly nuanced doctrinal matters within Judaism that involved factional infighting. But outside of the Holy Land, the issues of religion were more about Judaism versus the various pagan religions that dominated the Roman Empire. Now, I think it can be challenging for Christians and Bible students to understand what it sounded like to the pagans of the New Testament era when the Jews told them about their one God and when they spoke and then when they spoke so harshly against the evil of idolatry. See, the concept of idolatry, follow me with this. The concept of idolatry only exists in a religion whereby idols are forbidden. And that prohibition of idols is generally restricted only to, to Judeo-Christianity. Nowhere else. In other words, up to New Testament times, it was only Jews who leveled the charge of idolatry. Because in all other religions, the use of idols was usual, normal, and customary. Now, to be chastised and told by a small but vocal minority who live their lives in nonconformist ways that you are evil for having your cherished household idols 
for sincerely worshiping the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses that practically everyone did, including, by the way, your esteemed political and social leaders, that did not sit very well with the majority who felt very good about their idols and their religion. See, Jews showed open contempt for the pantheon of gods that dominated every Gentile society they lived among in the diaspora, and it made the citizens of the Roman Empire feel like Jews and Judaism were cultish isolationists who thought that everything they did regarding the spirit world was right, and everything everybody else did regarding the spirit world was not just different, it was wrong. The Gentile Roman society, on the other hand, was quite tolerant of all the many different religious beliefs and God systems, including Judaism, by the way, unless the Jews became too radical and irritating to their way of thinking. And it must be realized just how different and separate from all the other world's religions Judaism was and remains. The Roman historian Tacitus, who was born, by the way, at the time of the events we're reading about in the book of Acts, said this about the Jewish religion. He said, The Jews regard as profane all that we hold sacred. How would you feel? Let that sink in for a moment. The Romans may have been pagans in the eyes of the Jews, but they certainly didn't consider themselves pagans. The Romans in general were very religious. They prayed regularly. They had temples. They sacrificed. They tithed. They believed in divine beings superior to themselves. They saw themselves as generally pious and good people. But the laws of Moses were so contrary to most religious customs that existed in the Roman Empire, the Jews were so different in what they ate, what they wore, in their religious observances. They were so resistant to recognize or to join in the pagan religious observances of their neighbors, so they were often seen as aloof, unfriendly, uncooperative, and highly intolerant. Greeks and Romans were open-minded towards religion. Jews, well, they were closed-minded. And of course, in our time, just as 2,000 years ago, the qualities of tolerance and open-mindedness concerning all things, including morals and religion, are highly valued by society in general. So when a certain religion, like Judaism or Christianity, comes along, turns up our noses at tolerance and open-mindedness, refuses acceptance of all religions, all holy books as being good, then the followers of that religion are looked down upon by others as hateful, backward, a societal problem to be dealt with. And just like today, 
Most Jews in the Roman Empire tried very hard to walk a fine line between observing their religion and having a live and let live attitude towards their pagan neighbors. So when Paul and Barnabas came along and upset the apple cart, pretty much wherever they went, they weren't very welcome by the majority of Jews or Gentiles. And that as much as any reason is why we see Paul attacked, run out of town, is almost routine. But he never gave up because the cause was greater than himself. Let us end with this thought. The book of Revelation reveals that the end times will be much like the time of the Roman Empire. Especially so as to the challenges that worshippers of the God of Israel are going to face. So as believers living in the 21st century, what shall we do? Shall we do what society wants us to do? Shall we learn from history to compromise? To do as the Romans did and join in their tolerance for anything and everything as what they saw as an honest expression of love and intelligence. Shall we agree that faith in anything is a good and equal faith to our faith? Shall we practice our faith as a purely private matter and keep it private by not revealing any element of it in public or at our workplace, sometimes not even to friends or family? Or shall we do as the Jews of Paul day, Paul's day and in the years thereafter and stubbornly adhere to our faith even though the world will misunderstand will think of us as aloof, intolerant, unloving, isolationist. Well, here's what our Savior, Yeshua, had to say about this very challenge. He says it in John 15, verses 17 through 21. He says this, This is what I command of you. Keep loving each other. If the world hates you, Understand, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you do not belong to the world, on the contrary, I've picked you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A slave is not greater than his master. (laughs) They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. If they kept my word, they will keep yours too. But they will do all this to you on my account. Because they don't know the one who sent me. We'll continue Acts 14 next week.